0: you're now listening to a podcast of revolution church located at 1702 6th street in portsmouth ohio revolution meets on sunday evenings at 6:30 p.m for more information visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our facebook page yeah i'm just gonna preach this sermon in slow-mo for that one it's gonna be awesome i know what all, you guys are all thinking that want to watch the football game hurry up and shut up um yeah, they, they talk about like how they're going to prank me in different ways with like what they're going to do before the I start preaching. What did you do the last time? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they played the Space Jam theme. It was awesome. Anyway, so that has nothing to do with anything. How are you guys? All right. I see a couple of new people. I'm glad you guys are here. Um, some people that I haven't seen in a minute. I'm glad you guys are returned safely. I missed you. Um, but tonight... Uh, If you're new and you don't know what we're doing, uh, we are continuing our series called Bible Stories, subtitled Christ in the Old Testament. And what we're doing is we're looking at the most famous Old Testament stories, and we're seeing how they all point to Jesus, because the New Testament tells us everything in the Old Testament was a type and foreshadowing of the one who was to come, who is Jesus Christ. Uh, So far, we've only been in Genesis and Exodus uh, for Months now. And it's been a lot of fun. Uh, we've been in there so long because there's just a ton of stuff from Sunday school, right? That's kind of the idea of this, is to reteach the Sunday school stories. A lot of us learned uh, a bunch of moralism and didn't really see how any of these stories really pointed us to Jesus. Um, and that's kind of what we're trying to correct here. But we've only been in Genesis and Exodus so far. Uh, and from here on out, we're going to kind of be jumping from book to book rather quickly. Uh, And tonight, we're jumping straight from Exodus into Joshua. So we're skipping ahead uh, three whole books. Um, We're going to be in Joshua chapters 2 and 6. If you're a Bible flipper, you can turn there. It's going to be here on the projector. Uh, Also, if you're new, there are Bibles in the backs of those pews. Take one home. That is a gift to you. Uh, But what we're looking at this evening in Joshua chapters 2 and 6 is the story of Rahab, uh, the account of Rahab. She is... uh, a Canaanite prostitute, if you don't know, and, and it's very, very interesting what happens uh, with her. But anyway, so we're skipping Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and that's no disrespect to those three books. They're important, but they don't really have the stories that we were taught in Sunday school. Honestly, most of us probably never heard anyone read out of Leviticus until we were like 17 or 18 years old. Um, you ever tried to read Leviticus? I, mean, I hope you've all read Leviticus. Like I hope you're reading your Bible. There's a lot of stuff in there. You just got to really like mine it out and get and, and and stay awake through it. Not that it's not good, but. Take some studying. Anyway, it's neither here nor there. Sidetracked. In the account that we're going to look at this evening in Joshua chapters 2 and 6, what we're going to see, so i just give you kind of like an outline of what I'm hoping that you guys are going to see with me, is we're going to see, one, the astonishing grace of God towards sinners. And this is something that we hear about, yes, God is gracious, yes, God has grace towards sinners, but I really want us to to be meditating on that this evening because it's something that we're we're oftentimes forgetful of. Um, but we're going to see the astonishing grace of God towards sinners, and we're going to see the confidence. Like, and I hope that you guys leave here with a sure, rock-solid confidence, more than you previously had, um, that we come to God by faith alone and nothing we do. Faith alone in Christ alone. And we're also going to look at, likewise, the nature of genuine faith. Genuine faith that saves, as opposed to a nominal faith um, that many people in America have uh, that grew up in church. And we're also going to see how God takes us into himself and adopts us by the work of Jesus Christ. Um, so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to hop into this. We've got some recap to do because we're skipping three books. I'm going to clue you in on where we're at in Joshua. We'll do that, and then we'll get in the text. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you. Um, thank you for the people that are here this evening. God, um, arouse our attention that, that we might pay attention to what your word says that we might be broken by it and encouraged by it, that we might see you for who you are, that you're a God of wrath and a God of grace. Father, encourage the believers here this evening to look to your Son and know that they've been reconciled to you by faith in the work of Him. And God, encourage the unbelievers that are here to look to your Son and be saved, that it doesn't matter where they come from or what they've done, but that you will save them by faith alone, in Christ alone. Holy Spirit, please use me as an instrument to tell your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, cool. So to give you guys a little bit of a a recap, Israel, as we saw in Exodus, has been freed from slavery in Egypt. They were there for centuries. Um, And as we're coming to Joshua, they have just finished their wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Right? So the first generation of people that were freed from slavery are dead now, we are into the second generation of the freed Israelites, and they are now getting ready to take the land promised to Abraham, also called the promised land, because it's creative. Um, but they're getting ready to go into the promised land, God promised Abra- Abram or Abraham, whatever you want to call him, depending on the time period. Um, God promised Abraham land, um, land uh, that the Messiah would come through him and that his Descendants would be as numerous as, as the stars. And we see God promised Abraham that in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. And now God is bringing that to its, to its uh, fullness in the Old Testament period. He's about to give them the land that he promised Abraham. And at this time, Moses is dead. Right, Moses. I said that really like casually. Moses is dead. It's no, no problem. Uh, Moses has died, and God has raised up a man named Joshua, the son of Nun, as israel's leader just fun fact whenever i first heard someone read that joshua son of none i kind of scratched my head and i said he can't be the son of nobody like i'm serious like i'm not gonna lie to you like it's the first thing that i thought because i'm stupid uh but yeah so joshua is now (laughs) israel's yeah i think i'm funny and you guys don't i got a mic and you don't whatever you're gonna listen to all my horrible jokes um but yeah so joshua is now leading israel um But I kind of want to kick it back to something. So they're getting ready to take over Canaan. They're getting ready to go in and take control of the promised land. And how are they going to do that? Well, Moses actually, in a final speech before dying, it's it's the book of Deuteronomy is like Moses' farewell to the nation of Israel before he dies. Uh, Moses tells them this concerning taking Canaan. It's Deuteronomy 20, verses 16 through 18. But in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God, All right? So the Israelites are to take Canaan and drive out and destroy everyone in these cities that they're to conquer, All right? It says, devote them to destruction. It means to slaughter them, leave nothing alive, leave no man, woman, child, beast, leave nothing alive in these cities as like a, a sacrifice to the Lord. Essentially, it's like it's what it means to devote something to destruction. They're doing this at uh, the Lord or Yahweh's command. They're doing it? Uh, just fun fact, Yahweh is the name of God in the Old Testament. So they're doing this at the command of Yahweh. They're to, to devote everything to destruction. Now just real quick, because we've got to address this, because I want you guys to know, I'm not afraid to talk about those passages. Um, that's not the text that we're going to be in this evening. That's not the main point of this sermon. Uh, but some people will claim that God is ethnically cleansing Canaan. Right, That God is some kind of a divine racist, and he's wanting all the Canaanites killed just because they're Canaanites. This is not ethnic cleansing, whenever he says, devote them to destruction and kill everyone and everything in those cities. This is really judgment on the Canaanites for their sin. Genesis chapter 15, verse 16. God's talking to Abraham, and he's telling him, After your descendants are slaves in Egypt for 400 years, I'm going to bring them out, but they can't have the land yet. Right, so they can't have the land yet. They have to go into slavery first, and then this, Genesis fifteen sixteen. And they shall come back here, this is the promised land God's referring to, they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So God is telling Abraham that his descendants will return to the land of Canaan when the Canaanites' iniquity has reached its fullness, and God is ready to pour his wrath out on them. So that is telling us that his wrath is building towards these people for 400 years because of their sin. These people were godless. They'd sacrifice children in fire to their false gods, Chemosh and Molech. Horrible people, sexual immorality, running rampant drunkenness, all kinds of sin. And God says His, his wrath has built up for 400 years. And I think this is a good reminder before we, before we even get into the text. God is holy. He's holy and He will not be crossed. You will not violate His commands. You will not not worship Him and then get away with that. Sometimes he punishes people in this life and then chases them on into hell in the next. And other times they get away with it here, but then he punishes them in the next. But make no mistake, no one gets away from a holy, just God. The penalty of sin is death. It's the wrath of God. Let that be a reminder to all of us. We're all sinners. This is all what we deserve for our myriad sins. The the Israelites are really no better than the Canaanites, by the way, as God was gracious towards the Israelites in not destroying them because God sovereignly gives grace out to whom he will is why he's destroying the Canaanites but not only his holiness and wrath but also consider God's patience towards sinners He gives him 400 years for his wrath to build up he doesn't execute his judgment rashly he's a patient and just God right so I wanted to, to just address that real quick Come and see me if you have any questions about how is it just that God would say kill every single human being and animal in these cities. If you have any questions, I, I want to answer them, but I'm here to preach now. I'm not here to do apologetics, right? The pulpit is something entirely different than what we might do. I'm not, I'm not here to answer questions. I'm here to declare what the Word says. We don't stand in judgment over the Word. The Word stands in judgment over us. Um, but there's a lot more answers to this than I have time to give you this evening. So please come talk to me because I understand. The first time I read Joshua, I stood back and said, God did this god had them do this so i really want to talk to you if you have uh hold-ups about that or hang-ups about that um but know this god is just the bible all over the place says god is just so just because you come to one passage in the bible where god does something that you don't think at the time is just don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. whenever we can look all throughout the scriptures and see his justice and goodness so you know what i mean don't don't throw all that out just because you come to one text that seems hard all right, so please come talk to me um because God is, going, God is telling them, kill everyone in these cities. Um, so the Israelites are to take command of the land and purify it from evil. That's God's intention here. Purify this land from evil. God has commanded them to do this. And the first city beyond the Jordan River to be taken by the Israelites is a city named Jericho. Right? You guys have heard about this. It's actually the oldest city that we know of in the world. Right, this is madness. I had no idea until I studied that. this week. It's the oldest city in the world. It has walls around it. You've heard about the walls of Jericho, right, Chris Jericho, the wrestler? Yeah, right? But you've heard about the walls of Jericho um, and how the Israelites marched around it and it came down. It's that Jericho. We're going to get a little bit into that story. But it's fortified, right? It's a fortress city, um, and, and, and the people of Jericho are enemies of Israel, they're, which means that they're enemies of God because Israel is God's people, and God identifies with them that, clo- that closely, and they are to be utterly destroyed. But, in Jericho, there is one Canaanite woman. There's one Canaanite woman who displays amazing faith in the true God. And she is saved by the grace of God. All right. so let's check this out. Joshua, which I've been excited for this all week. is a very simple message. This is good stuff. Joshua chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, we're going to start with. And Joshua, the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land." But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where they went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with stalks of flax that she had laid in order on, her, on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out, right? So in preparation for war, Joshua, a good military commander, right? He sends out two spies to check out Jericho, right? Like, check this place out. What do they got? What kind of military they got? What kind of walls are we looking at here? We've got to take this city, check it out, spy out the land. And they go to a prostitute's house. Good times, right? Could have been an innkeeper of sorts, some people speculate. These Israelites may have been bad dudes. That's uh, not a huge part of the story. But they go to a prostitute's house. And apparently, they're not very good spies. I actually, like, laughed out loud whenever <laughs> I was reading this. Like, the king of Jericho finds out, hey, we got a couple of spies up in here, guys. Right? And not only that, but, like, I'm just thinking of, like, the Pink Panther, right? <laughs> like, this whole time. Like, not only does he know, hey, we got some spies in the city, but they're at Rahab's house. <laughs> right? Like, they, they know exactly where these spies are. It's probably their first covert mission, so, like, give them a break here. Um, Right? But the king knows where they're at, and he knows in what house they're in. And the king goes to this prostitute Rahab and asks, where are these men? Right? He's not wanting to have a conversation with these men. He knows they're Israelites. He knows that they're there to conquer the land. He's wanting to kill them. They are our enemies. Where are they? It's time to kill these guys. I know why they've come. And Rahab lies to the king. right? Straight up, Rahab lies to the king. And she hides the Israelites, and she sends the king's men on a false hunt out of the city, while the men stay in the city. I right, just wanted to lay that out there. Some people try to justify what Rahab did, and maybe more nuanced, and you feel free to debate with me on that after the service. But Rahab lied, point blank. She, she, she deceived somebody. Um, the New Testament commends her for hiding the spies, for certain. But she's never commended for lying. She sinned in that, and I was listening to John MacArthur talk about this. This is a fun thing to consider what miracle did she rob us of in lying that God, may, God would have made another way for these spies to stay alive? Just an interesting thought. But nevertheless, she lied. She sinned whenever she lied. Um, so don't go out of here trying to justify yourself. Well, Rahab sinned and it was like for a good reason. No, the, the ends never justify the means if the means are sin, right? Period. Uh, but I want us to consider something real quick. It took me a few days to, to really, this to hit me. Think about the magnitude of what Rahab just did, right? Like, she didn't just lie, and she didn't just hide some random dudes, right? She'd probably done that before. Um, sorry. Um, she, she didn't just lie, and she didn't just hide some people. She just committed treason. Like, I think, think about that for a second. Rahab just committed treason. She has, in lying to her king, she has betrayed her city, She has betrayed uh, the the whole region of Canaan. She has betrayed her king specifically. She has betrayed her entire culture. She has aided the people of God in their destruction of her home city. Rahab has effectively sided with the people of God and become an enemy of Jericho in this act. She has become an enemy of the world and sided with the Lord. Now why? Why? Why would she, living in a walled city, a fortress, not hold her allegiance with the city and fight Israel? Why would she do that? The text goes on, I think, to tell us. Verses 8 through 14. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. So in her conversation with the Israelites, I think Rahab tells us why she just sold out her city and helped Israel. Right? Verse 9, the first half says, I know that Yahweh has given you this land. She is fully convinced that God has done something and that he, it's irreversible. I know he has given it to you. It effectively belongs to you. Not only that, but verse 10 says, she has heard of what Yahweh has done. She has heard about how the Lord has crushed the enemies of Israel. How he's crushed any who would oppose him. How he crushed Egypt and how he crushed the kings, Sihon and Og. Like how It's just it's futile to stand up against this God. The first half of verse 11 says, Her heart melted in fear of God. That's what it means when your heart melts. Terrified of this God. It says she has no spirit left in her. She has no fight left in her to try and oppose this God. And the second half of verse 11, I think, is really the the big one. The Lord is God. Yahweh is God. He is not, not just a God of many, but He is God in the heavens and God on the earth. He is God above all other supposed gods. And He is sovereign. That's what she's getting at whenever she says God of heaven, God over heaven, and God on the earth. He's sovereign. He's the one true God of the universe. He's the one who controls everything, and it's stupid to try and oppose him, so I don't want to oppose him anymore. Hebrews 11.31 kind of gives us a little bit of an insight. It says, By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So by faith, Rahab betrayed her people and was saved. Now, of those things that I said that I think she believed... I want to kind of dumb it down like for myself as well, but I want to kind of like condense it all. What is this text? What are those points that I said in those verses verses nine, ten and eleven? What do those show us that she believed? One, the God of Israel is the only God get we we can't we can't get past this He's God above all things He's sovereign and rules over everything, so it is futile, futile to oppose him. He's supreme over everything like just get that through your head like she came to this realization I can't fight this God. He indeed is God. Two, that that same sovereign God that she recognizes is the only God has set his sights on destroying Jericho and everyone in it. That God always in the past has proven with other nations that he destroys all who would oppose him. Now we're letting on a secret that it's because of their sin that he's going to destroy them. But she knows that this God plans on destroying her for whatever reason and that He alone is God. And then thirdly, she shows that she knows and believes that the only people that are ever spared from destruction from this God are the people of this God. Because that God is with them and fights for them. And essentially she says, I want mercy. I want mercy from this God. This God wants to destroy me he is the only God. I need to seek shelter in Him. That's, why she, that's what she believes. That's why she does what she does. These are really astounding truths that Rahab has come to as a pagan. Right? If you really think about it, she doesn't know anything about this God of Israel except for those things. She doesn't know much more about his, his character. She sees God as the only God, that His wrath is coming against her, and she desires mercy. That's profound. What's more astounding is that this... That this is all that it takes for anyone to be saved from the wrath of God. Really, like, consider this. The Bible says God gives grace to the humble. She says she has no spirit left to fight against this God. And she's humbling herself before the people of God, which is, in effect, humbling herself before this God and asking for mercy. Please save me. God says, I give grace to the humble, but I oppose the proud. And He saves all of those who seek Him. And I think that this is a beautiful reminder. Um, at least it was to me when I was writing this, that it is not knowing theology. (laughs) Rahab is not a theologian. It is not knowing theology and having all of your doctrine worked out. It is not having a good upbringing or family. She's a hooker, right? It is not doing good works. Again, she is a prostitute. It's nothing but having faith in Christ and a broken, humble spirit that saves. To know that His wrath is coming against you for your sin and humbling yourself before Him saying, I can't fight you. It's righteous that you would destroy me for the sins that I've committed. I want mercy. That is all that it takes. That's it. I wanted to highlight that because often we pay lip service to this truth and I know I say this truth all the time, but in our hearts I do forget this. That this is all that it takes to be saved. To humble yourself before this God and look to Him for mercy. I know that if I do that, I'm not the only one here that does that. But think about that. That, That's it. That's all that it takes. There's one God. His wrath is coming against me, and I want mercy from him. So I humble myself before him. Rahab was broken and sought out that mercy. And because of that, she became willing to forsake everything she knew because she believed those truths. Here's a question that I started asking. Me and Dave Allison were actually talking about this. He's adorable, by the way, if he's in the front row, or back row, second row. I can't speak English. Um, Me and Dave were talking about this, though. Why did Rahab believe and turn to God while others in Jericho didn't? Did she have any special knowledge that the other ones didn't have? No. No. In her own testimony, whenever she's telling them the reason why she's hiding these spies, she says, we heard what God did. We melted. Our, sp- like, like our spirit was gone. Right? She says all this we. So this is all the people of Jericho know the exact same information that Rahab knows. Why is she the only one who seeks mercy from God? Grace. Grace. Grace is the reason that she sought mercy from God. By God's grace, Rahab received this information like all the other people in Jericho. And then rather than militating against this God like the other ones did, they, they wall up the city. They, they won't send out trying to make any kind of peace treaty. They say, you want this city? You're going to have to come in and take it. We're going to fight you and Yahweh. We're going to take you and your God on. That's what everyone else in the city did, but not her. She was humbled by the supremacy of God. She was humbled by the wrath of God coming against her. That's a work of grace. God gave Rahab spiritual sight to see that he alone is God and that he cannot be stopped and that there is only salvation in his mercy. The grace of God alone caused her to see that her only hope was to seek shelter in him and align herself to him. Like we sang the the hymn Amazing Grace. Stephen didn't know that I was going to say this actually. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to... Fear. Why do you fear hell and you can talk about the same hell to an unbeliever and they don't care? Why can you talk about the wrath of God coming against somebody and they say, yeah, I don't, I, don't really, I don't think that really applies to me too much. Grace is why you care. Grace is why you fear God. Grace is why you fear hell. Ephesians chapter 1 says that the eyes of our hearts are enlightened by God so that we can see these things. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says the same thing, that the unbelievers' eyes are, are veiled and Satan is blinding them. They cannot see the truth of the gospel, but God graciously intervenes and just like in Genesis speaks, let there be light into the hearts of those whom He will save. By grace. It is the sovereign grace of God to give spiritual sight to unbelievers like Rahab, like you and I. I want this to be a huge reminder to us that it is not... Your smarts that cause you to believe. You're not a Christian because you're more intelligent than someone down the street who doesn't believe on Christ. It's not that you made a more rational decision because you know you pieced the puzzle together and you said, hell or eternity with God. I think I'm going to go with eternity with God because I'm not stupid. That is not what happened. It's not because you're more intelligent. You can tell the same gospel message to the same two people from the same household with the same upbringing. The same exposure to the gospel. And one might believe and the other one might completely reject it because it is sovereign grace that saves people. God reaches into the heart of the unbeliever and converts them. It's not because you're smarter than other people that you believe. It's because of God who gives grace to whom He will give grace. And He chose to give you grace because He is merciful and kind and compassionate beyond measure because you don't deserve it neither do I. Just think about Rahab wasn't particularly intelligent. She was a woman in this time period. She wasn't educated. And she was a prostitute. Again, not educated. It was grace that caused her to see these things. So know that. And don't become arrogant that you're a Christian. Don't become arrogant about the unbelieving world around them. Let your heart break for them and pray that God would do the same thing in them that he's done in you. It's not because you're smarter. It's because God of who gives mercy to whom he will. But this account of Rahab's faith and her salvation highlights something about the character of God that is awesome. <laughs> Not only his, his sovereign grace, but consider this. God, and we hear this a lot, but please meditate on this. God saves any and all who will come to Him by faith. Any and all who come to Him by faith asking for mercy. Anyone. Regardless of their past Regardless of the sins that they have committed, no matter how heinous, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their national identity, regardless of their former religion, regardless of their sexual orientation, regardless of whatever, God will save any who look to Him in faith. (laughs) That's unfathomably gracious. Any who looked to him. Like, think about Rahab. Rahab is, like, one of the biggest examples of this to me in the whole Bible. Her and Paul, right? Rahab for the women, Paul for the men, obviously. Think about how Rahab is identified in this text. Rahab the prostitute. Whenever you're, like, like whenever you get a name like that, like, you know, someone's a tax collector or someone's a prostitute, like, your sin is what you're known for at this point. Right? It's not Rahab who sleeps with people once in a while, or she's done it a couple of times for money. Like She is a straight-up prostitute. She is known for this sin. This woman is completely immoral. She has whored herself out for a living. Think about that for a second. Like that, That's one of the lowest professions that someone can possibly go into, complete and utter moral debasement. And not only is she a prostitute, but she is a Canaanite. She is not of Abraham's physical seed she's not a descendant of Abraham And not only that but she was a complete pagan she followed and worshipped and sacrificed to false gods This is a woman who spent her life whoring and lying, worshiping false gods, and who knows what other horrible things that she has done, because sin inevitably leads to more sin, and more sin leads to more heinous sin, so who knows how awful of a person that Rahab is. Like, just think about it. It doesn't get much lower than a false god worshiping. The Bible says if you worship a false god, you're really worshiping demons, right? So a demon-worshiping, non-descendant of Abraham, whore. That's the woman that we're talking about here. And I'm not just saying, I'm not just using this kind of language to like shock you or whatever. Um, I want us to really consider her depth of sin and her alienation from God. It doesn't get much lower than this woman. And God saved her. God saved her. Though her sin was not small, God didn't care. His grace was deeper than her sin. God knew what she was. There's no hiding anything from the Lord. He knows exactly what you are. He knows exactly what I am. He knew exactly what Rahab was. And He still sovereignly shows her to be saved out of the city. Consider that. Know this. Upon her faith in God, God no longer counted her as Rahab the prostitute. It's another beautiful thing. Upon faith, she became His. She's no longer this pagan whore She's His now. Upon faith, she became justified in God's sight. I mean, she instantaneously, instantaneously received right standing with God the moment she believed, the moment she sought mercy from this God. I, want, I hope that this brings hope to you if you're a Christian and you're discouraged by your past. Right? Like, we all know, if you've been a Christian for very long at all, And you really understand the depth of your sin at all. We all know how Satan likes to remind us of our former sins. And our former life. Even if you weren't as bad as Rahab, you still know how bad that you really were. You know the people you slept with. You know the porn you watched. You know the lies you told. You know the drugs you did. You You know all of the things that you've done. You know that you've looked at someone that wasn't your wife with lust. You know all of the things you've done. You know the things you've stolen. Even if you weren't as bad as Rahab, you know how bad that you actually are. Even if you've never externally committed those sins. You know the things that have been in your heart that ought not have been there. You know what a wretch that you are. And those things creep back up on you because Satan loves to accuse the believer of past sin. But God says this to the believer. Romans 8.33 Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. It is God who gives the legal declaration of righteousness in His eyes. So who can bring any charge against God's elect? Those of us who have been chosen by God to be saved. So in spite of your past, present, and future sin, the believer is declared righteous by God. And God justifies all who believe. I know that this is no new information to a lot of us. How often do we really think about the joy that comes from this? But not only encouragement to the believer, I hope that this is a source of encouragement to the unbeliever. That God promises to save you. If you're here and you're not a Christian, please hear me on this. God promises to save you regardless of what you've done if you will trust that Christ has given you right standing with God through His work on the cross. God is not asking you to get your act together and come to Him. That's not what Rahab did. She came to Him wanting mercy. She had not done the first good thing. Come to Him and be saved from the power of sin. Be saved from the wrath of God. Like Rahab, we are all saved. From the prostitute to the soccer mom, all of us are saved by God's grace alone through faith alone in the work of christ alone there is no other way to be saved this is a gracious god be encouraged to look to the savior god doesn't ask us to get our stuff together and then come to him he says come to him as we are and he will change us but this account not only reveals the grace of god but it also shows the faith of rahab and what i mean by that is i think it shows us the nature of true saving faith and I can't talk about being saved by faith alone without talking about these things because so many people have a horrible view of what it means to have faith. So while studying, I found it really interesting that what Rahab did um, was recorded in the first seven chapters before we're told what she believed. Right? So I thought that was very, very, very interesting. And I think that that highlights to us the necessity of a faith that produces works. Right? Right? So we're saved by faith alone, Martin Luther, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. I'm just gonna scream that for the rest of my life, right? I just I hope you memorize that before you leave this church if you're in college. Right? We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. We're told what Rahab did before we're told what she believed. She acted on her faith and hid the spies. James chapter two, verse seventeen says, So faith, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Right? So uh, a dead faith is faith that produces no good works. It produces no change in the life of the believer. He's saying that is a bogus faith. That is a lip service kind of faith. And then Rahab is actually used as an example by James. James two twenty five and 26. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Right, and just so you know, whenever it says Rahab was justified by works, in the context of the letter of James, James is saying her faith was proven by her works. Because earlier he says, you say, you know, I'll show you my faith by what I say. And he says, oh, I'll show you my faith by what I do. Then he uses Rahab as an, as an example. Right, so it wasn't just lip service to God. It wasn't what we call nominal faith, where someone says, yeah, I mentally assent to all of these truths of Christianity. Faith works. What Rahab did in hiding the spies and betraying her culture really proved the reality of the faith that she had. Our works are our evidence of our profession of faith. There must be a change. Rahab had a radical change in allegiance to everything in the world. So again, I'll pose you this question. You've probably heard it before. It's a little bit cheesy, but it's incredibly convicting. Talking about our, our works being our evidence for faith. If put on trial for being a believer... What evidence could someone bring against you for a conviction? Would there be enough evidence for a conviction? If you claim to have been justified by faith alone, by the grace of God alone, what evidence would there be? And I'm not just talking about reading your Bible and attending church. God knows there are so many unconverted people who call themselves Christians that do those two things. What evidence is in your life? Or are you still very much at home in the world? Is this world still your home? Is there any evidence that someone could bring against you to prove that you're a Christian? And I ask that question. Because as we see in James, the reality of true faith and receiving grace from God is that it is transforming. Receiving pardon for sin and the Holy Spirit makes us into new people with new desires. The Apostle Paul says we are new creatures in Christ. We now desire obedience to the God who saved us because of our gratitude towards Him. We now desire holiness... Consider Rahab for a minute. Rahab's faith is to talk about what a great example that Rahab is, that true faith leads to works. Rahab's faith made her willing to betray her king and her culture. Rahab's faith made her willing to give up every single thing that she knew in order to know God. And likewise, our faith, if it be a genuine faith, is going to produce an effect no less powerful than, Than what we see in Rahab. No less powerful than what we see in the apostles. No less powerful than what we see in Abraham. It's going to have the exact same effect. So true faith, I'm going to argue from the example of Rahab. Makes us willing to betray our allegiances to this world. Because we now have allegiance to a new king. Rahab's faith made her a friend to God. And an enemy to Canaan. Which reminds me of James chapter 4 verse 4. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Whenever he says a friend of the world, it means to adhere to this world's values. To chase after the things that this world offers us, makes us an enemy of God. He's saying we cannot keep our allegiance to this world. Just like Rahab could not keep her allegiance to Jericho. She couldn't do it. Not if she really believed that the wrath was coming against her for it. She rebelled against her king. And I would argue faith leads us into true rebellion. True rebellion against this world. You know, people think that they're rebelling against the system whenever they reject Christianity and go live whatever kind of immoral life that they want to. It's not rebellion. That's what literally everybody is doing in America. Like, let's just call it what it is for a minute. That is not a rebellious attitude. True countercultural living is faith in Christ because we belong to a different kingdom, right? Just think about this. What is more rebellious in our culture than self-sacrifice? Give up something that you want to do or give up yourself for someone else? What's more countercultural than loving your enemies and those whom you disagree with, especially in the last few months in the political arena? What's more countercultural than to love your enemies? What's more countercultural than sexual purity and sober-mindedness? You might get mad at me for this. What is more countercultural than loving the foreigner? I'm not making a political statement on whatever Trump did. I'm talking about loving the foreigner. Do you hate the foreigner? Then you're a friend of the world if you hate those who are unlike you. If you hate people from other countries, you're a friend of the world. What's more countercultural than telling people the gospel of Christ? In, In short, isn't it faithfulness to Jesus and his word? Isn't that the most enemy of the world thing that we can do to be faithful to our king to be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God to be an enemy of God means you don't have faith in God so again I I can't stress this enough we are not saved by works but our faith must set us as enemies of the world in this way or we cannot truly possess faith But let's see what the outcome of Rahab's true saving faith and the grace of God towards her was. Let's see what that is. Joshua 6, verses 16, 17, 22, and 25. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent." But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. This was temporary. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Joshua, saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. And so this is the result of a genuine faith. A genuine faith that changes our allegiance. The grace of God, right? All of this, this is the end result. What happened to What happened to Rahab? This is beautiful. By the order of Joshua, Rahab is saved from destruction because of the grace of God towards her and her receiving that grace by faith. And in a much greater way, by the order of God the Father, we are saved through the work of Jesus Christ by the command of the Father. Fun fact, Jesus' name in Hebrew is Yeshua. It's Joshua. It means God saves. Joshua saves them alive In the same way that Christ saves us alive. Jesus is the greater Joshua. Jesus is the greater everybody. But Jesus is the greater Joshua. God didn't merely give a command that we should be saved. Like Joshua gave a command and and told them to go. God actually accomplished our salvation that he commanded that we would receive in eternity past. And he did it through Jesus. That we, we might receive it through faith and be transformed. And consider this Joshua, as the commander and leader of Israel, he commanded something and it was definite and sure to happen. Even more so is the decree of the Lord Jesus Christ that we should be saved by him through faith. This is like, this is a rock solid assurance for the believer. Christ has decreed that we would be saved by. Faith. It is based on His work and not ours. It's based on His atonement and not our perfect obedience. It's on faith and not works. What an eternal confidence that we have that we will be spared from the wrath of God by order of the King Jesus. What a firm foundation and confidence we can have when facing judgment from God, that God saves alive the believer. It's good news. Though we deserve eternal destruction, we are pardoned by the righteousness of Christ. But not only that, verse 25 told us in chapter 6 that Rahab lived in Israel to this day, whenever it was written. Rahab was adopted into Israel. This pagan Canaanite prostitute was adopted into Israel. Not merely saved from the destruction of Jericho, but taken in by God as a full member of his people. She actually goes on to marry a man named Salmon, who's uh, an ancestor of Jesus Christ. What spectacular grace that God would take this pagan woman and ingraft her into his people and say, not only are you part of my people now, but you're going to be an ancestor of Christ. What great things that he did for this woman. By grace through faith. Full adoption she received. The reason why I wanted to hit that briefly, sometimes we think, or if you're an unbeliever, maybe you're thinking this. We're saved, or God may save me, but He's still distant, and He still doesn't. He really doesn't like me because of my sin, or because of my past sin, or because of the things that I know I'm going to do in the future. That God may save me, but He still won't like me. I know I've felt that, that. I feel as if God is distant. Sure, He saved me from His wrath, but He's merely sparing. Us. He's merely sparing me. He doesn't much care for me because I'm so wicked. The Scripture says that God adopts us through faith in Christ, just like, Israel, or just like Israel adopted Rahab. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6 says, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So listen to me, if you're a Christian. He, in love, God predestined you for adoption, and He has made you His child. It says He predestined you for this, which means that you have been near to His heart from eternity past. Think about that. The grace of God towards you. It's from eternity past. He set His love on you and said, I will draw you near to my Son by my work. God loves us. He really, truly, dearly loves us. He calls us His children. He doesn't merely spare us from wrath. He brings us in and says, you belong to me and I love you with an unfathomable love. And sinner, if you're here, unbeliever, God is offering this to you. That this can be said about you. That God says He will transfer you out of your kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of His beloved Son. And He will do so by grace because He loves you. Repent and believe the Gospel. God does not ask us to fix ourselves. He tells us come to Him seeking mercy. That's it. Receive it by faith. Christian, be encouraged. You are near to God. So this story is, in closing, this is one of the wrath of God against sin and the grace of God towards sinners. This story is one that tells us the nature of true faith and the adoption that comes with true faith. In my prayer is that we would have a greater appreciation for God and a more sure conviction that God justifies the ungodly, the righteous for the unrighteous, the just for the unjust, and He does so by faith. And that we would leave here with a greater resolve to live out our adoption and our new citizenship with evidence that accompanies true faith. So I'll leave you guys with this passage. 1 John chapter 3 verse 1 See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are So go and be what God has made you Let's pray Father thank you for amazing grace unfathomable grace Thank you for Rahab to stand as a shining example of your grace in the life of someone who is so far from you. Holy Spirit, press on our hearts that though we may not have externally sinned in the same ways that Rahab did, that we, on our own and apart from your grace and your work, we are just as alienated from you as Rahab was in her outward sin. God let us never forget that it's by grace through faith alone in Christ alone that saves let us look to you always and be encouraged Father produce good works in us help us to God change us change our allegiance show us where we're friends with the world show us where we're your enemy that we might be reconciled to you through repentance and believing the gospel Thank you for everything you do, Father. Break the heart of the unbeliever that's here and cause them to see the light of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.